Welcome everyone to the Guardians of the Flame podcast. This is one of the, uh, I think, most enjoyable podcasts I've recorded. Sadly, it was recorded over a year ago, but it's as relevant today as ever. Uh, Also, just before I introduce the podcast, I want to say a couple of things about Guardians of the Flame. Obviously, it's a year of a pandemic. Everything's been put a wee bit on hold in a lot of ways. But we are about to start recording and filming our third season of podcasts. So in the next couple of months, we're going to be doing that before Christmas. So yeah, over the next four or five months, look out for podcasts coming out from Guardians of the Flame. You can find us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. So the the film versions will be on YouTube and the audio versions will be uh, on iTunes or, or our website or wherever you get it. So, And you can check us out at guardiansoftheflame.org. Uh, and just to say, um, there's also Patreon. We'd love, you, love some more supporters to come and join us there. Uh, pay You can pay $5, $10 a month. Uh, as little as that amount, then you can get access to unreleased audio clips and video clips and stuff. So we want to keep doing, keep doing that. So season three, we're going to be interviewing a whole bunch of people, and we're really grateful for the Community Relations Council that is funding this third season. Uh, this episode that we're publishing today was actually recorded, like I said, a year ago, and... Um, is kind of just we've had it in the background wanting to release it and there just hasn't come a time that's been appropriate but in the wake of uh, the world we live in today increasing polarization the u.s elections um, uh, response to the pandemic here in europe and around the world um, there's just a greater and greater sense of us and them and the kind of perpetual conflict and reinforcing polarized positions and this podcast's interview with Gareth is a really helpful look at that. He had just, at the time of recording this, released a book with Brian McLaren called The Seventh Story, Us, Them, and the End of Violence. Uh, and it's it's just brilliant, the stuff Gareth takes us through in this interview. So I think, really encourage you, there's no better time than right now in this kind of political moment in the world to listen to some of what Gareth says. Also, just to say that obviously with podcasts, one of the pleasures of my life is being able to interview friends. And as you'll pick up in this interview, Gareth is an old friend. And um, it was a real privilege to interview him and just to kind of let him tell his story and to let him kind of share what's on his heart. The other thing to say is he actually has a new book out. Um, it's just about to come out that hadn't been written at the time of recording this. Uh, that is How Not to Be Afraid. Gareth Higgins' How Not to Be Afraid. So if you look for that on Amazon or wherever you get your books, um, look for it there. And I hope you enjoy this podcast and we look forward to, yeah, kind of um, releasing more in the coming months. Thanks, everyone. I'm delighted to introduce my friend, Dr. Gareth Higgins. So Gareth uh, is an old school friend. Um, I met him in, when did we meet Gareth? In September 1991 in Sullivan Upper uh, Grammar School in Hollywood County Down, just outside Belfast. And, um, and we became friends. Uh, we sat together in French class. I think Gareth let me copy his work occasionally as we studied French existentialists and I didn't really understand what Mr. Russell was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so thank you, Gareth, for coming. I'm glad to be here. Nobody calls me doctor anymore, so Is that I'm right? already feeling 
I bet I'll kind of like you know, I'm in a time machine. Ah, uh, there you go. So. Well, I thought I'd give you your proper title to well, begin with. Well, thank and you. And then we'll, we'll, well, can we all uh, be done yeah, from yeah, there? Yeah. But I, I suppose to one way of describing you, there's probably multiple ways to describe who you are and what you do. But you could say that you're a storyteller and a violence reduction activist. You write books and you run festivals. One of your passions, I guess, as long as I've known you, is movies. Um, we used to go to the movies together, some good movies and some dodgy movies. Um, dodgy as in not very well made <laughs> movies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we ever saw any particularly dodgy movies. But, um, uh, I, 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 I remember that basically you think Robert Zemeckis has a lot to answer for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Anybody yeah, listening yeah. who likes the 19, I think it's 1992, Robert Zemeckis bleak comedy death becomes her oh yeah you should write to johnny and tell him why you like that film because for 27 years now johnny has been telling me how awful yeah that movie was yeah well gareth you know is 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 uh touted as a film expert and yet he was the one who took me to see <laughs> it must be is it meryl streep's worst ever movie I, you know? know there's a lot of people who like that yeah. film i i am one of the people who doesn't remember that film yeah yeah Single white female. We wouldn't saw that. We did. Too. That I'm wasn't still, very it's good. Just really interested your audience <laughs> to list all the films that we went to see. We sat yeah. in row L, yeah. seat three and four. And the I strand. tended to have a small popcorn. <laughs> and the strand. Sometimes cinema. the movie played half past seven in the evening. Sometimes half past ten at night. Yeah, yeah. And very. <laughs> yeah, those are good days. Those are good days. Um, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, why don't we? Gareth, I'd like to, I would like to actually kind of talk about you know your a bit your life, the life mm-hmm. that um, many of us who are from Northern Ireland would know you from. Um, but before we do that, why don't we start with most recently? Um, you've just um, yourself and Brian McLaren have released two books, uh, a children's book and a, a not a children's book um, called The Seventh Story or the kids one is uh, Corey in the Seventh Story. I wonder, can you? Um, why don't, just why don't you tell me about that project? Yeah, sure. But you know, Brian McLaren, um, who, as many people know, is one of the leading uh, compassion-oriented uh, white cisgender male Christian voices in the U.S., uh, um, has influenced me, and we've become friends over the years. A couple of years ago, we were talking about the myth of redemptive violence, which mm-hmm. is a concept that our mentor, Walter Wink, came up with the idea that you bring order out of chaos through force. Now, he didn't invent the idea. He just named the concept, the myth of redemptive violence, that our culture, the shared culture that that uh, people who've grown up in post-industrial uh, Western European-influenced culture is founded on is the idea that if someone gets in your way, you can kill them to get them out of the way. Mm. And... Um, you know, you might not want to kill them, kill them might not be the nicest thing to do, but ultimately you you keep that in your back pocket as an option. And there can be something noble about doing that. Oh, absolutely. And and, and in some senses, it can be the most noble thing mm. anyone can do with their, mm. their life is to take the life of another in order to, you know, you could use words like achieve freedom or, or bring peace and, and so forth. And, you know, so that's the belief, that's the myth. Um, and... We see this myth shot through our culture. A good example would be Jaws, 
many of us are familiar with it, film about the shark, the way they kill the shark at the end of that movie is the bit of gas canister in the mouth of the shark. Mm. And Roy Scheider then shoots the gas canister, the shark blows up. It's this massive, and you could call it a beautiful explosion. I don't think anything can be beautiful that is destructive. Uh, but people might call it beautiful. It's certainly spectacular. And then all of a sudden the water is now safe and the world has been born anew and everything is peaceful again. And the two guys swim back into shore and there's lovely lilting music and, and the film ends. And I remember watching that as a child and thinking, no, there's a problem here. You've just blown up the shark and the shark has friends. And it's not safe. But as you grow older, you start to become less wise, I think. Uh, I think there is a wisdom to what we might call the innocence or wonder of childhood. And as you grow older, you start to think, well, yeah, you know, sometimes you really do just need to blow people up mm. in order to bring peace. And you, you forget things like, um, for instance, the end of the Second World War uh, was not peaceful for the Soviet Union. Mm. That what Stalin was allowed to do because he was considered, you know, one of the allies that helped end the Second World War. Um, probably, you know, certainly killed more people than Hitler killed in concentration camps. Mm. Uh, or the end of the First World War was not peaceful for the former Yugoslavia. Mm. Um, that, that blowing stuff up, and the most egregious example in human history, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm. the killings of hundreds of thousands of civilians really to, to warn a country that they could do it. So, I mean, it's ridiculous that we, we warned the country we could do it by doing it. Mm -hmm. When even strategically, even if you were a warmonger, it wasn't necessary. You know, there's evidence that Japan was getting ready to surrender. We see this deeply in our culture. Walter Wink wrote about this from a perspective of philosophy, theology, uh, archaeology, and studies of the ancient uh, past, and he discovered that the, in the earliest written down manuscript that human beings have yet discovered, it's called the Enuma Elish, it's part of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the Babylonian people's creation myth. And Babylon, ancient Babylon is basically modern day Iraq. The Babylonian creation myth, human beings emerge after a few eons when there's a couple of gods in the sky who uh, have trouble with their kids, these little kid gods, and... Um, the kid gods rise up and immediately kill the father. They can't kill the mother. The strongest kid says, tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I'll kill mother on our behalf as long as you make me supreme ruler of the universe, which is another element of the myth of redemptive violence. The warrior, the strongest warrior or the, or the most destructive warrior, I don't think strength and destruction are the same thing. Mm. Uh, the same as I don't think beauty and destruction are the same thing. But the most destructive warrior gets to be given all the treasure. Mm. And that's why we sometimes see utterly unwise, utterly unintegrated, immature human beings getting elected to the highest offices in the land because they're the ones that say, we're basically going to beat the other team up for you. Mm -hmm. um, so the other kids say, whatever it takes. And this God sneaks up behind his mother, uh, turns her around, kisses her on the lips, blows a poisonous gas into her mouth. Her stomach distends. He then stands at a distance and fires an arrow into her stomach. And she explodes in the sky. And from her entrails, it's pretty gruesome, from her entrails, this uh, God stretches out the heavens and the earth and creates human beings. Mm. Now, what this has to do with Brian McLaren and me, I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> um, 
When Walter Wink saw Jaws in 1975, he realized it's exactly the same story as the mm -hmm. Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a god, a monster, who has a gas put into its stomach and then a projectile gets fired at the gas, the gas blows up and the world is created anew. Mm. Now I've asked people involved with the making of Jaws if they had relied upon the Epic of Gilgamesh to define that ending and their answer was, what's the Epic of Gilgamesh? Mm -hmm. And Walter's point is, you don't have to have read the Epic of Gilgamesh to have been infected by it. Mm. It's in like the, I don't want to say it's in the DNA of our culture, because, and well, you can now change DNA, I suppose. So it's, it's, it's just in the water, it's in the air that of course you should blow stuff up. Of course there's, you know, that, that will bring peace. Brian and I were talking a couple of years ago. He said, you know, we could write something about the myth of redemptive violence. Walter's been uh, dead for a few years now, so he's not writing anything anymore and we miss him. And he'd kind of given his blessing uh, to, to, to me and some others to continue his work. Uh, not kind of, I mean, he actually did give his blessing. Uh, uh, we decided we'd write this book. And as we started to reflect on it, we realized some of the ideas in this are too big to be entrusted to grown-ups. So we needed to write a children's book that children could enjoy and appreciate but that grown-ups could read and maybe be affected by perhaps even more than if they read a thick, heavy analytical book. Um, and just to be on the safe side, we wrote a book of essays as well. The project is called The Seventh Story. Uh, it basically is premised on the notion that we're all storytellers. We make up our identities out of stories we've heard we should be asking ourselves, is the story true? If the story isn't true, we should, we should find a truer story. And even if it is true, we should ask ourselves, is this the most helpful version of the story I can tell? Uh, because the culture we share is dedicated to separation, humans separating from each other, humans separating from earth, humans separating from God and love. And we need to find stories in which we can dedicate ourselves to connection, humans with each other, humans with earth humans with God and love. Mm. I should stop there because that's a very long answer mm. to a short question. Uh, okay, um, maybe just before we move on from the, uh, the book itself, can you just summarize a little bit what these seven stories are? Yeah, um, so the first story we call the domination story, and these are all stories that humans have developed to try to bring peace and security. The domination story is the one that says, I'll get peace and security by ruling over you. The Roman Empire is an example. Darth Vader's empire is another one. But it's also the way some people run their businesses and the way some people rule over their families. Mm. And the domination story is the shadow side of servant leadership mm. in, in which people take a leadership role and they use it with consciousness to promote the common good and they're accountable for their actions. Mm. The second story is the violent revolution or the revenge story which says... I'll get peace and security by overthrowing you and then I'll rule over you. And there have been plenty of violent revolutions in history. And it's the shadow side of the, the need for justice. There are regimes and power structures that need to be replaced. The question is, are we going to replace them in a way that decapitates the leadership or destroys them? Uh, or are we going to look after the needs of the vulnerable first while always making space at the table, even for the people who have oppressed us? 
as long as they're willing to play by the rules of not oppressing us anymore. And the third story is the purification story, which is the one that says, it's your fault, it's not mine, because of what you believe, what you wear, where you live, who you love. And so the way I'm going to get peace and security is to build a very heavy boundary around me, maybe even a wall, or, you know, just to be sure, I might exterminate you. Uh, just to get, just to be sure. And whether it's actual genocide or character assassination, we're probably all somewhere on the continuum of, of character assassination, both as a target of it and as someone who's willing to do it. I've certainly been willing to assassinate people's characters and I know people have tried to do it to me. And aside from not being very nice or uh, if it, it doesn't, build peace and security mm. in the world. And that's the shadow side of the need to have moral boundaries around uh, harmful behavior. Mm. But uh, as uh, I mean, Jesus says, look at the plank in your own eye, take the plank out of your own eye before you look at the speck or, or confront the speck in another. And as I've heard you recently quote, Solzhenitsyn talks about the line between good and evil runs through the center of every human being. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that I'm as bad as Hitler. It really, really does. And I think it can mm. be you know, metaphysically, mm. if you're if you're in the Christian tradition, all have sinned and fall short mm. of the glory of God. That's fine, mm. um, but objectively, sociologically, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Mm. But if I want to change Hitler, going into Hitler and saying I'm better than you, isn't going to work. Perhaps talking to Hitler from the perspective of, here's where you remind me of me. Mm. Here's the evil in my heart. Here's the, here, and here's the fear in my heart. And here's the desire for safety in my heart. Mm. And yeah, I understand the, the, those feelings of hatred. You should stop. Mm. <laughs> you should stop. Yeah. Um, the fourth story is the isolation story. It's, it's the one that says, I'm going to achieve peace and security by getting out of here going to a, a, a desert or a, a wilderness and uh, creating a promised land there, a utopian community. And I'm only going to bring people with me who look like me or smell like me or believe like me. They're kind of as pure as I am. And the history of utopian communities is that they very quickly devolve into domination narratives and violent revolutions and nobody's ever good. Like if you start with this purity thing, you're suddenly going to find someone in your midst who's not pure. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's the shadow side of the need for contemplation and solitude, conscious solitude. There's every one of us needs it. Some of us are even called to be hermits. Most of us just have a need for some solitude. And the idea is you go out of the world for a while to get fueled up by the solitude and then you come back. Then you come back. You're not supposed to build a utopian community removed. The community that you serve here is a really, really good example. I was going to say ideal, but we're not, we're not ideal. Ideal and utopia are, they're, they're not healthy. Mm. Uh, uh, Ideal is not a healthy ideal. Um, You're in the community. You're, you're rooted physically Mm. in the space. You're connected with people who don't live here. People come and go. Um, that's the isolation story. The fifth story is the victimization story. It's the story that says, I've suffered so much that it's the most important thing about me. And uh, I'm going to hate the people who caused the suffering and anybody who reminds me of them. And that's going to be my driving force in life. And entire nations have been built on this completely understandable, totally, it's a biologically natural reaction to violation, to rage and want vengeance. Mm. 
It's a biologically natural response. It's why we have justice systems. Mm -hmm. Some of them are restorative. Some of them are retributive. The restorative ones both holds accountable the person who caused the violation and cares for the person who suffers. And it restrains, uh, it restrains vengeance. Mm. Uh, that's the, the, the victimization story is the shadow side of compassion mm. for suffering people and a willingness to go more than the extra mile to care for people who've been violated. And part of the reason why the victimization story is so present is because we don't do restorative justice all that well, whether in a formal sense or just in our interpersonal relationships. Mm. You know, we don't even have to have been violated in a major way to hate our neighbor. Mm. You know, I know people who didn't talk to their next door neighbor for 15 years over uh, one of them building a fence, mm. you know? Um, and again, it's, it's, it's a biologically natural thing to, to feel like, oh, he's taken something from me. But it didn't have to lead to 15 years of silence. Mm -hmm. You know, never mind. I mean, we both know people who've suffered grievously, grievously, grievously and have been assisted in transforming their victimization into something different. Yeah. Uh, the last story is the accumulation story. It's the story that says, I'll get peace and security by owning more things, whether it's a bigger sofa. Mm or a bigger house, or, you know, why don't, let's just invade a country and see how that feels, see mm -hmm. how that goes. And Jesus speaks very clearly mm -hmm. when he speaks, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and the rich young ruler mm -hmm. are kind of two sides of a coin, to, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. Like, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away feeling pretty mopey about that. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Zacchaeus hangs out with Jesus for an evening and then repays what he had unjustly taken from people four times over and joins the club. Now, maybe it's just Jesus spent a whole evening with Zacchaeus and only five minutes with Rich Young Ruler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so the accumulation story is the flip side of the need to steward beautiful things. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, her lovely story about her lately, I thought that she had lived in voluntary poverty for most mm. of her life. It turns out that wasn't true for at least some of her life. Um, she served the poor for sure, but she loved having beautiful things. And the difference was if you came into her house and she thought you might like this beautiful thing that she had more than her, she would just give it to you mm. because she saw it as like grains of sand that were just flowing through her hands. Mm. It was her job to steward it. It's the opposite of someone spending $100 million on a Leonardo da Vinci painting so that he can lock it in a vault and then sell it for $150 million mm. in 10 years. It would be more like someone spending $100 million on a Leonardo da Vinci painting and then giving it to a museum that that it's that is legally instructed to make it available for people to see for free. Mm. You know, and then there's, most of us aren't going to do that. Mm. Um, but we have opportunities in our daily lives to steward beauty and to share it. Mm. The seventh story, the reconciliation story, transcends all of these. Mm. It's the story in which we connect with each other rather than separate. And the most important difference between it and the six stories is that in the six stories, I am the center. It's all about me. And you could say it's all about human beings. In the seventh story, love is the center. Or a different way of putting it would be to say, in the six stories, me is the object of my ambition. In the seventh story, 
Love is the object of my ambition. And so if I step into a story that says, my job today is to serve love. I mean, what better, what more enjoyable life could there be than that? Because in the six stories, if you just serve me, the best thing that can happen, the most that can happen is that you'll die alone surrounded by your stuff. But if you devote your life to serving the ongoing evolution of the story of love, you might not have as many houses. You probably won't fight in as many wars. You may not win as many elections or sell as many books. Uh, I'm disappointed about that one. Um, You will have a lot more fun. You will be happier and you'll have so many friends you you won't know what to do with them. You'll have this thing called abundant life because mm. something will happen to your ego. And I'm not, I'm not saying this has happened to mm. me. Like, mm. I think it is beginning mm. and it's beginning because Brian McLaren taught me the ideas of these stories. And then we went and we wrote this children's book and we wrote this book of essays. And we're just experimenting with it. We don't think it's right. We don't mm. think it's perfect. Um, uh, but it's, in Brian's words, it has recarbonated the water mm. uh, of his faith. Mm. Um, and it's done something similar for me too. That's lovely. I mean, those stories, I, I resonate so strongly with either in my own life or seeing other people. Yeah. Um, uh, they seem, did, where did he get those or where did you get well, that? Did you just kind of come up with them or so is there, are they somewhere else? Is lovely, there one of, of the lovely things about Brian McLaren, he's, he's too humble to say this, but my understanding is he was just sitting one day and thinking to himself, I wonder what the stories that were believed in Jesus's culture hmm. And the most obvious one was the domination story being the Roman Empire's belief that it was the truth. Mm. And then there were people who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And then there were people who wanted to withdraw. And then there were people who were always complaining about other people aren't good enough. Mm. And then there were the woe is me Mm. people. And then there were the ones who just wanted to kind of get out of that and get as much for themselves as possible. Mm. Mm. So yeah, he, he, he's smarter than I am. And, uh, Mm. uh, so he came up with it. But the good thing about knowing that there are people who are smarter than you, mm-hmm. uh, as Gene Hackman says in David Mamet's movie Heist, which I think you and I may have gone to see on Boxing mm. Day sometime in the mid-90s, there's a great line in this. Gene Hackman's playing a thief. He's one of those kind of high-class thieves who, like you would think these high-class thieves would have enough money after all the robberies they'd done that they wouldn't need to do any more robberies. But he does the robbery because it's kind of classy. It's like going to a formal dance. And somebody says to him, how did you get to be so smart? And he says, I'm not that smart. But when I have a problem, I just ask myself, what would somebody smarter than me do? And I do that. So you don't have to be smart. Mm -hmm. You just need to ask yourself, what would somebody smarter than me do? And Mm -hmm. do that. I know you ask that of yourself about me all the time. What would Gareth do? That's kind of You have a brace that says WWGD, (laughs) right? That's, I I don't have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there, that that explains so much. Full disclosure, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's there's so many ways we could go here, Gareth, but let's maybe um, go back in time now to when we first met uh, in the early 1990s. Um, I was, um, Northern Ireland was still uh, in the kind of, what you want to say the last days of the troubles, but there was a lot of heartache was still inflicted on people in those yeah. last seven years, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and then we, we went to see movies and the, the funny thing is, you know, I think sometimes when I talk to people who are not from here and you talk about the troubles, you know what it's like. Um, 
they go, that's crazy. It must have been crazy to live here during that time. You're like, well, no, actually, I had a very safe, comfortable life. You know, the, the, bizarre, the bizarre stuff about people that grow up in areas of conflict is it becomes normal to you. Um, and you go to the movies and you go to concerts and you go shopping and, you know, and, and you kind of t take the uh, hearing bombs as, you know, in the distance as a kind of just, that's just the way it is, you know. Uh, so it was a funny kind of time to be living um, for the two of us. Um, and in that, what, if you were to think of a, a film that kind of somehow hmm. in those years that kind of was significant to you and kind of helping to shape, help, helping you to kind of come to terms with what we were living through, but also maybe to shape, because I think you've been more than anyone I know, I think you've been, sh you get shaped by going to the movies, yeah. you know. You know, <laughs> you wrote a book that how movies helped to save my soul, you know. How did, you know, movie, what was your movie during that time that kind of shaped you and what was it and how? You know, I remember, I remember Braveheart, mm. which is a film I really object to now <laughs> because it's all about it's the, the myth, myth of redemptive, redemptive violence, violence that, yeah. that William Wallace, mm -hmm. I mean, another part of the problem of the myth of redemptive violence is based on the idea that not only did Jesus's death save the world by atoning from God's wrath, mm. which is a very complicated idea and a very troubling idea. Um, but that it was like Jesus had to die the, the, the most gruesome death mm. in all of human history. Mm. And um, William Wallace in Braveheart, which funnily enough is played by Mel Gibson, who went on to make the most blood curdling Jesus movie. It's not really a Jesus movie. It's an execution movie called mm. The Passion of the Christ. Mm. Like Mel Gibson dies this absolutely horrifying death mm. and still manages to shout the word freedom mm. at the point where his body's been kind of torn apart. Um, but I, I hadn't sort of developed any of these, mm. these ideas hadn't occurred to me. So I was just inspired by it. Mm. And I think what I was inspired about was I wanted to help people have a better life. Mm. Um, it's funny because you don't actually often see in movies like that, what does the better life look like? Mm. Um, movement films are usually not very good. Mo films about social movements are usually not very good. Mm. There, there, are, there are three that I really like and all but one of them is more recent than, than I'll come to those. And, and I'll just name it. It's Warren Beatty's film Reds, which is about the rise of socialism and communism in the United States mm. in the 1910s and, uh, and uh, uh, early, early 1920s. And Dorothy Day is on the fringes of that story. Um, uh, Selma, uh, mm. the more recent film about the black civil rights movement march and it being attacked mm. uh, in Alabama. But really my favorite movement film is a film called Pride about something I didn't even know what happened. And that was during the 1984-85 coal miners strike in Britain. There was a lesbian and gay bookshop in London who realized that they weren't getting attention to their cause of civil and human rights for what wasn't even called LGBT people at the time. And some of them realized, well, look, there's these other people who are suffering. Let's help them. And they apparently took, it was quite a while before they found a coal miner's village that was willing to accept the help from a, a group of, again, lesbian bookshop, but they did band together and helped each other. And actually the gay pride parade in London, I think in 1985, maybe 86, the float at the head of that parade was coal miners uh, thanking uh, the folks 
who'd helped here. Now, why I love all three of these films is they're realistic about what building a movement is like. Mm. It's painstaking. It's difficult. It takes a long time. People fight with each other. Nobody knows what they're doing when they start. Mm. It coalesces over time. They have arguments about what's most important. Different people assume different leadership roles. Somebody needs to make the tea. It's probably best if everybody takes turns to make the tea. Although some people have a real gift of hospitality for that. And most of all, there's joy in the midst of it. In, in Reds, there's a lot of dancing and lovemaking. In Selma, some of Dr. King's humor comes through. And uh, I've learned recently, Joan Baez uh, tells people that Martin Luther King was the funniest person she ever knew. Mm-hmm. And in Pride... There's just so much love and connection happening between these disparate groups of people. I think sometimes the movements that we get into and we try to build, they're trying to deal with serious stuff and then they end up becoming so serious themselves Mm. that it's kind of god-awfully unpleasant to be part of the movement. Mm. There's got to be joy in there too. I think it was Emma Goldman said, if your revolution doesn't have dancing in it, I don't want any part of it. Mm. But to go back to films that... Mm a film that inspired me when when we were first getting to know each other. You know, Braveheart is the like superficial one, Mm. but the film, one of the films that speaks to what is the world we want to build? Mm. Not just how do we want to inspire it and Mm -hmm. what do we shout when we're getting executed? Mm. um, Is a film called Smoke, Mm -hmm. which is set in a Brooklyn cigar store. Harvey Keitel runs the cigar store. And it's just four or five little stories. There's a writer nearby, William Hurt plays him. There's a a woman who's had a difficult life that Stockard Channing plays. There's a man with a a very guilty secret that Forrest Whitaker plays. And it's about how their lives all intersect with each other. And you just know these people, multicultural, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, they have this community hub and you just know that when they're in trouble, they look after each other. And everybody does look after everybody else mm-hmm. in this film. Uh, so um, these days I'm much, and I've grown to love that film more and more over the years. It's, it's, it's one of my two favorite films. And I want, sometimes I want to be running the cigar store. Sometimes I just want the cigar store to be there so that I can go into it mm-hmm. and, and be part of this small community where I am known and where I know people and where we look after each other, where we mm-hmm. celebrate with um, the good and we struggle together with the bad. Yeah, it's funny, uh, thinking of Braveheart, I um, I was in South Africa actually when we watched Braveheart and it does connect quite strongly with a, a number of those stories that you were mentioning earlier, you know, the victimization story, or yeah. the overthrowing story. Or, uh-huh. um, and uh, and it, there is such a romance to, to all of that. Oh my. You know, there's so much of it appeals to... I suppose in many ways is the parts of ourselves that didn't actually need to be redeemed, you know, in some sense there needs to be some kind of redemption come. You know? but, well, it feels romantic because we haven't rehearsed stories of creative nonviolence. Mm. So uh, if I recall it and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I've only seen Braveheart twice and the last time was the second week it was on release. <laughs> because I liked it so much back mm. then. <laughs> I've never watched it again since, so apologies if I'm missing some details. My memory is they throw the king out the window. Like, mm. like they literally throw him out the window. Something like um, that. Yeah. And to his death. 
And of course, you know, there's this gut thing of, yeah, you know, that's mm. what I want to have happen. And part of that, again, it's a biological urge, and but it's one that needs to be tamed. Mm. A bigger problem is we just haven't told loudly enough and creatively enough the stories of nonviolence or less violence, which are even more exciting. Mm. The Gandhi story is more exciting. You know, the 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 number of people whose lives were saved mm. by having a nonviolent revolution in India rather than a violent one. Yeah. Um, the work of Erica Chenoweth, who has studied with her team uh, the the nonviolent and violent revolutions of about the past hundred and hundred and twenty years, and shown comprehensively, nonviolent revolutions have more effect in the future at building stable societies than violent ones. So if you're actually, if you're interested in the freedom that William Wallace wants you to have, mm. don't do what William Wallace did. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. or don't do what the Braveheart version of William Wallace yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. If you want that freedom, yeah. uh, the only person who you can ask to die mm. is yourself. Mm. And you probably don't even have to, you know, to certain circumstances you might, you might be faced with your own mm. death. But the only person who you can ever ask to die mm -hmm. for a cause is yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, how about we just reduce violence in the meantime? Mm -hmm. How about we build the kind of networks like the cigar store and smoke or this community here mm -hmm. where people can come mm -hmm. and have their needs met? Because mm -hmm. this is all about, you know, all wars are about people feeling that their needs aren't being met. Mm -hmm. You know, some people need to be shown that they've misunderstood what their needs actually are. Mm. Like nobody needs a fourth boat. Mm. You know, maybe yeah. a ferry line needs a fourth boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's um, yeah, it's definitely true that um, I think nonviolence stories and stories of reconciliation and peace and they are very captivating to people and even to people whose primary narrative is often the myth of redemptive violence. I mean, I know often going to America, where you currently live. You've lived for the last, how long, 10 years? Yeah, 10 oh. or 11 years. Um, I mean, I know I've gone there and spoken at churches, which would be, you know, um, full of lots of wonderful people, but people who are steeped in the myth of redemptive yeah. violence would, would be, the stars and stripes would be on the wall next to the cross and they would be, you know, patriotic to the T, you know, celebrating the right to bear arms and, you know, celebrating their, their veterans and the soldiers yep. and you know, the wars that their country is fighting. But then I get up and I talk about reconciliation in Northern Ireland and the need that, uh, to build peace and stories of nonviolent, nonviolence and stories of forgiveness. And they come up and they go, that was amazing. That was brilliant. Love that. I love that. I'd love to support what you're doing. And you're just so funny. It's, it's a very bizarre scenario where you realize people actually do love the good. They are attracted to goodness, but oh, yeah. it's so easy to be sucked into the lowest common denominator, which is... Well, people will eat what they're, eat what they're fed, mm. right? And, uh, and I mean, literally people will eat what they're fed. If you, if you feed people the best kind of food, which is the most attractive kind of food, the tastiest food, and the most nutritious food. It's a mm. virtuous circle. The most nutritious food is the most colorful. Mm. Think about a red pepper, a green pepper, and an orange pepper compared with the color of a, of a of processed cheese, mm. right? Mm. Um, you offer that and don't offer the crap. People will eat it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. If you offer people a gospel that is basically the myth of redemptive violence wrapped up in a flag, 
mm-hmm. which is what the, you know a lot a lot of the mainstream gospel in the United States is a form of civil religion, and I wouldn't call it just patriotism; it's nationalism, um, and it's what people have been given from when they were born. It's very very difficult for people to come out of that for a couple of reasons. One is it's hard for people to change their minds. Anyway, the other is to leave that, as you know, means to leave your entire community. Sometimes the more reactionary it is, the harder, the, 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 the deeper the ties are likely to be because you'll have been taught purity narratives that say, come ye out from among them, which means don't be friends with these people who are different. And, and there's this, this is because people secretly know if you be friends with these people who are different, you might change your mind more easily. And so I find I came to a place in my life where um, I was terrified of God rejecting me if I left the church system I was a part of. But I was also terrified of losing my entire community because mm. I literally didn't have hardly any close friends with anybody who wasn't within that system. Mm. And so it took me about seven years to extract myself. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't, again, I wasn't strategizing for it. It was just mm. one day I woke up and I knew, oh, I, more of my community is outside the system than inside it. Mm. And these people are good people too. Mm. And if by their fruits you shall know them is true, mm. I was seeing good fruit. I was seeing the fruit of people loving their neighbor. Mm. Um, which is the, frankly, it's the only part of the greatest commandment that human beings can objectively verify is happening. Because I, I can sort of tell if you're loving yourself by mm. how you show up in the world, but I don't, I can't read your mind. Mm. And I can sort of tell if you're loving God. But I, again, I can't read your spirit. Mm. I can tell if you love your neighbor or not. Mm. You can watch that. Mm. Mm. So that would be, you know, if you want to know, should you attend a church mm. or vote for a candidate mm. or join a club or be a citizen of a nation, mm. ask yourself, does it love its neighbor? Mm. And then, you know, don't reject it if it doesn't, because that would be doing something with, that would be ignoring the plank in your own eye. Mm. Decide you, if you can join and help love it. Mm. And if it makes demands on you that cause you to not love other people or ask you to not love other people or not love yourself, it's probably not for you. Mm. Mm. Um, so just kind of fleshing out a little bit of who you are, uh, for people who may not know, um, you know, I um, went to school with Gareth and, and Gareth, you went and studied sociology at Queen's, became probably the youngest guy I knew that got a PhD and a very good professor. And a very good professor. He ended up co-writing um, a book, um, a kind of academic book on peace building with Professor John Brewer. Um, and two books, did you? What was it? The Mode and the Beam? We did, yeah, one? we did one on the history of anti-Catholicism and then we did another one with Francis Tini and John Brewer on uh, religion, civil society and peace building in Northern Ireland. Mm. And then in those years, that's the 90s, it's kind of late 90s, um, you were uh, you, you were getting involved in kind of peace building activities. You were, um, and and that's kind of that shaped a big part of your life, and it, it kind of obviously still does to an extent. That kind of peace building mm-hmm. side of you, um, where did that come from? Like, yeah. what is the? I mean, you've talked about Walter Wink. Yeah. What other? What were the other spiritual yeah, things I've, that made you do that? Like, I I've thought about this a lot because. You know, I do think there's certain stuff that may just be innate. It's just mm. born into your personality stuff. 
And then I had parents who really didn't want me to be politically aligned with one side or the other here in this society. Uh, that helped. I remember also my mum took me to see the Gandhi movie when I was nine. Mm. And it had a huge impact on me just mm. to see this figure. And I mean, Gandhi's not a great movie in terms of uh, what it is to build a movement, which is why I didn't mention it earlier. Mm. Um, and it's not really a good movie about Gandhi's inner life mm -hmm. either. It is a good movie about one person being incredibly courageous and bringing people with him. Mm. And about that person's spouse sacrificing a lot. Mm. And I just remember having the focus of that individual and thinking this person was remarkable. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up, and here's the paradox, in that church that I've just discussed leaving, mm -hmm. I met people while I was still there who were on fire with a reconciliation spirit, with a peace building mm -hmm. spirit. You know, our friend John Kyle, mm -hmm. who is a Belfast city councillor, just retired as a doctor. In the 25 years I've known him, most of what I've seen him do has been just wanting to help other people. Mm. And um, to spend a lot of time doing that and mm. to not ask for credit. He took me to a meeting when I was, I don't know, feel like I was, I might have been 19, I might have been 22. He took me to a meeting of Irish Republicans and Protestant uh, clergy. And I wouldn't have been invited to that meeting by myself, but he vouched for me and uh, I got a taste for dialogue and meeting people from the other side. And um, and then Tony Campolo, the great American Baptist minister and sociology professor, showed up in my life when I was mm. 18 and I went and volunteered for his ministry in New Jersey and um, discovered a side of America that I hadn't seen in the movies. You know, mm. Difficult economically disenfranchised uh, city in which this concept of white flight where white people had left the city and kind of abandoned it mm. and African-American people had stayed there and the city had not been invested in and mm. it had become the fifth poorest city in the country. And I got to go and just see this and learn about this. Tony and his son Bart came here for a week in 1998 and I got to hang out with them for that time. And, and they were always saying, like, praying is good. Mm. And there was a lot of prayer for peace mm. and ecumenical worship services mm. that bring Catholics and Protestants together are good. Actually, I'm being polite. They were not saying that those <laughs> things were good, <laughs> but they're, they're fine. They're mm. fine. And they can be very meaningful. But what's the practical action of peace building that needs to happen mm. here? If you have segregated residential neighborhoods, shouldn't we be moving into each other's residential neighborhoods with mm. permission? Mm. If you have a segregated education system, shouldn't we be utterly utterly overthrowing that mm. and uh, non-violently overthrowing mm. segregation in education mm. and educating people uh, together. Mm. And most of all, if, if the people who look like you and who believe like you or who came before you harmed the, the, other, the people on the other side who came before you, what is your responsibility to those people? Mm. And if you are the one being harmed, how can you hold a boundary and challenge that harm without repaying an eye for an eye, or without using violence in return? And I woke up to the fact that I was this kind of weird mix of Protestant, Catholic, Northern Irish, Southern Irish, English and Scottish, and that's just in my parents' and grandparents' mm. generation, 
My family had been bereaved by both loyalist paramilitaries and Republican paramilitaries, and the violence of the state had affected our home. Mm. And so I'm, I'm 44 now, and I'm still thinking about this, that I am descended from people who might have caused harm, and I'm also descended from people mm. who experienced harm. And anybody who lived in the north of Ireland uh, from the mid-60s to the late 90s Ex- probably experienced some harm and probably either turned a blind eye or they participated in a sectarian joke or they didn't do the most that they could. Mm. Now, we know some people who, you know, there are some people who really did do the most that they could. Mm. And, and there's some people, part of the tragedy or the, 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 the difficulty of peace building is some people did more than the most that they could. Mm. And they... Mm became exhausted or burned out Mm. through doing that. But we've learned so much now about how to sustain ourselves. Mm. We've learned that that, um, we should do something between the least that we can and perfect, Mm. right? Something between those two boundaries. Those would be influences. And and I just, through all these people, I got to read brilliant people and Mm. uh, meet wonderful people here, particularly uh, people who were quiet and not public. You know, yeah, and uh, we had a good network of friends, and I suppose yeah. we were all spurring each other on, and and you know, it was a it was a good those were good days in many ways. It's funny when when I well, look we, back. Oh, can I say just yeah, one yeah. thing about that? So again, I I will be eternally grateful to the church that we were a part of, and the reason mm. I don't name the church mm. is because I left it, mm. uh, and I don't I wouldn't want people to think. I left and it was a terrible church, mm. right? Mm. I left for reasons that I, I still have strong thoughts about and I still would want to give feedback mm-hmm. to that church about its theology regarding some things, particularly about LGBT people. Mm. Um, but I'll be eternally grateful for three things in particular. One is passion for reconciliation and peace building mm. that I really found there mm. and was taught there. The second is the belief that you could do something meaningful with your life. Mm. And we were being told that all the time, maybe to a mm. fault. Mm. And mm. some of us made choices about our lives that mm. made our lives mm. extraordinarily interesting. Mm. Uh, and the third is relationships mm. with people. Mm. Um, I might even add a fourth, which is a kind of an experience of mysticism mm. that was exciting, mm. different from a contemplative form that I had mm. known before. Yeah. Uh, and I'll always be eternally grateful yeah. For that coming to life in me. Mm. When I, I still re- think what they think about gay people's shit. Yeah. <laughs> can you say shit in this podcast? Are you well, like I said, yeah, can you, you beep just, it out? You just are, you gonna, did. are you gonna beep it out? Uh, yeah, you can't yeah, beep yeah, it out. Yeah, you can't yeah. beep it out. Cause <laughs> as Tony Campolo would say, if you're more offended by the fact that I just <laughs> said <laughs> shit <laughs> than whether or not LGBT people are treated as fully human, you got a problem. Yeah. Yeah, good one. It, Tony Campolo is massively influential <laughs> uh, in my life. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, I think so many people's lives. Those times in the late '90s, he came a bunch of times. And um, recently, I have a friend in Philadelphia, and Tony came to his house for dinner, and uh, he asked Tony to bring his latest book and to sign it for me. And uh-huh. uh, 
So I said to him, tell Tony that, you know, I'll be seeing Gareth again soon. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, he's uh, a great man. Apparently Tony said shit again when okay. I went there. <laughs> 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 uh, this whole podcast has been leading up to that. <laughs> yeah. Remove that. <laughs> no, but, but, I make the jokes. But, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, but, um, but thinking back to those, those good old days, you know, um, I'm reminded of, I think you've, uh, met or know of um, a preacher, Jonathan Martin. Yeah, yeah, how to, yeah. How to Survive a Shipwreck was his most recent book. Uh, he was here a few months ago and uh, he's a great guy. But he said something um, which I just thought was brilliant when he, you know, thought back to his Pentecostal childhood and some of the stuff that went on there and where he's at now, which is still, I would say, as someone who's following a trajectory of love. He's still mm-hmm. fo- he's still believing what he was told in the 90s by people that God loves us like a like a parent and yeah. God wants us to change the world and he's gone okay. Yeah. I'll take that. And and he said um recently he said this he said it's painful when God is leading you to a place where other people who have been important on your journey cannot follow. Don't judge them nor judge where you've been. God was back there too and still is. Don't let your heart be arrogant now, but also don't stop walking. And I suppose what I hear in that, I resonate quite strongly with that, is that sense that, um, you know, when we look back to our childhood um, and where we and when we look to where we are right now, it can feel like we're in a different place. Uh, but in many ways, I think we're, we've just kind of kept following a trajectory uh, of love that we got taught in our late teenage years and we've we've kind of took it at its word oh wow god is love you know we are meant to love people um but it's led us into paths that sometimes people can brand you as uh, you know dissidents or weird or you know whereas you know in many ways i feel more than ever in the heart of the the stream of god's goodness as ever i've felt you know um i wonder when when you look back on on those years, and we, Gareth and I, were part of a church where you would sing worship songs and it was kind of charismatic. Um, you've talked to me recently about your rekindled kind of appreciation for your charismatic early years yeah. and how to kind of fuse it with where you're at now where, you know, people use the word progressive and all this. Can you, like, speak sure. into that a little bit? Well, you know, there's there's a black lesbian bishop and I think she's in the Bay Area. Her name is Yvette Flunder. She's created a network of churches. And my understanding is um, deeply involved in ministering in the first wave of the AIDS crisis when when people called it a plague, you know. Mm. Um, And I was with someone from the Bay Area this week who 500 members of her congregation died. Mm. 500! It's amazing. Over 10 years, mm-hmm. she said that, that every week two or three people would be announced as having died. And I was with another man last week who came on one of our retreats here in Ireland who nursed three of his friends in his own home who died within the space of two or three months of each other. Mm. Now, that is not Jesus alive in the world. Mm. Love. I don't... I don't know what is. And Yvette Flunder said to me at a conference we were involved in a few years ago, 
words that I think have, they've actually, you know, this is the first time I heard this idea, but it's really just come to life for me lately. And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, it feels a bit weird to talk about it because it's so personal, but, but I'm, I, I'm happy to talk about it because I think, I think people, there's lots of people like us mm. out there who, you know, it always helps me when I hear other people tell stories that sound like, oh, that sort of sounds like me, you know, mm. so maybe this is you listening. Um, she said, I understand why you left. Mm. And you should leave if there's a burden on top of you that is unjustifiable and unnecessary. And there's another place to go and serve where you're not going to be, where you're not going to be abused by the system. You're not going to be told that you're less than, you're not going to be told that you're demon possessed Mm. because of who you love. You're not going to be told that you can't be involved as a member in this congregation because uh, God made you more open-minded. Right, mm. which is all you know. That's all I. Th- it's one of the things I think is going on with LGBT people. We're just, mm. we're just, we're just more open-minded. <laughs> um, there's a whole lot more to it than that too, but it's not a problem, mm. and it's not a disease. Mm. It's a gift. Mm. It's a gift. Mm. Um, so she said, I know why you left, um, and and it might, it might, it might have it, for many of you. It was the noble thing. It was the honourable thing to do. It was self-protective, and it was also stepping out of complicity in a system that was harming other people by saying, "I'm not willing to be part of this," even though there's lots of things I like here. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying that I thought it through like that at the time. But then she said, "There comes a time when you need to go and get your God back. Mm. Go get your God back." Ask yourself, did the process of leaving, was it so traumatic? Was it so big? Did I need to disappear quickly in the night like some people have needed to do? That I left some things behind that I didn't want to leave behind? Mm -hmm. And like maybe you can't go back into a burning house to go and get your favorite photographs or your diary, Mm -hmm. but you can sort of reconstruct them later on. Mm And so what's been happening to me is meeting mentors who have integrated an experience of uh, following the teachings of Jesus, living in the wonder of the presence of God, and seeing all human beings as fully affirmed, worthy of love, and particularly people who religious institutions and other institutions have dehumanized because humans always seem to need a scapegoat. Mm. And the primary ones in the cultures that you and I exist in Mm. are women, Mm. people of color, indigenous people, and sexual minorities, LGBTQ Mm. plus Mm. people. Mm. Uh, Let's talk about um, your sexuality. Um, You identify as bisexual. Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, for those listening, Gareth was the first person to come out to me. I'd, I had never in my uh, up until that point is probably I was about seventeen. I had never. Well, that's a coincidence because uh, I was the first person to come out to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was. Um, I had never met anyone who had confessed their attraction to members of the same sex, and uh, and it kind of blew me away. We were sitting outside the Ulster Hall. There's a big concert hall in the middle of Belfast, and we had just seen Petra, 
And one of the um, one of the sorry, Petra. Uh, no, I like that concert. I, I, yeah, no, I remember. I still remember singing um, "We Exult Thee." Yeah, good song. Uh, I like that it was, song. It was good. They didn't write it. It was always but, you a know, good one. If you sat down, if you good. started singing that, and the, and the congregation was sitting down, they'd be on their feet by the end. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> but I remember you know sitting outside and you just telling me about your life um, mm. and uh, and telling me about this secret that you had mm. that uh, at the time was something that was definitely a burden in your life mm-hmm. that um, that like many people in your position would have probably done anything to have changed yeah changed it. Um, and you and you did do a lot of things or tried a lot of oh my, yeah. things, um, and and yet here you are in your early forties. Uh, you're married to Brian, who's a great guy, um, and you've got a good life. But and there's been a journey there uh, on that. And I suppose um, you know I've I've never actually sought to ever be a crusader on the area on the issue of um, crusader is a very bad word to use. <laughs> I've never, I've never really, you know, daydreamed about being an advocate for LGBT people. Um, uh, but I have ended up kind of doing that a little bit more um, lately. And um, even in this podcast, just kind of interviewing people who yeah. are, are uh, part of the LGBT community. And, and I guess, um, what I feel I can do is give a platform to people who often don't have a voice. You know, I think one of the realities is if you're part of a church context, the people who have the power are often men, they're usually straight men. I mean, that's certainly, yeah. if they're not straight, they're secretly not straight. And, um, you know, and, and we have the microphone and, and so you don't, we don't give the microphone to people, um, who are in our churches? Who um, who are not, you know, male, white, straight yeah. people, and so I kind of want to give the microphone a little bit in some ways to people who don't always have the power or the privilege yeah. that I've had. You know, uh, you know, I've. If somebody said to me the other day, you know, pr- real sign of privilege is the ability not to care about something or to yeah. go, it's not really my thing. That's a privilege. You know, if you're being beaten down. Uh, if you're an African American slave in the 1800s in the in the Deep South, and you're at the end of a white man's whip, yep. you don't have the privilege to not care about being a black slave. You don't have a, the privilege to not care about slavery. Uh, and I think one of the privileges people like me have is that I could just walk away from this issue. You know, I could just go, "Well, it's not for me." You know, I'm going to stick to Israel Palestine. You know, <laughs> uh, Christian Zionism. Right? Go stay with the easy ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, I do feel a call, as many Christians do, to go, like, we just can't keep walking on the other side of the people in our churches, our communities, um, our Christian communities who are who have been beaten up mm-hmm. and are lying wounded and bloodied by the side of the road, and we cannot walk on the other side. And, you know, I think in many ways you were one of those people who in some ways experienced some bruising and being beaten up a wee bit, you know, uh, but you've made it through um, uh, and to being, you know, a healthy guys writing books that are transformative in people's lives. You know, what can you describe some of the key pillars in, in that journey that you've taken, you know? Um, you know, so it's good that you give the platform, that you share the platform or that you mm. surrender the platform. Mm. I think surrender is probably better, mm. maybe better than give. Mm. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, but mm. it's good that you do that. Mm. And we all have privilege. 
mm. of some kind. And the John O'Donoghue said the duty of privilege is absolute integrity. And I understand that to mean we should be assessing ourselves for where do we have privilege, whether we think we earned it or not. And privilege, another word for privilege is power or resources. Mm -hmm. So where do I have resources, whether I think I earned them or not, and how can I use them to serve the common good? Mm -hmm. And then the other side is where do I lack power, privilege or resources, and who are the safe people that I can ask mm -hmm. to assist me, to be mm -hmm. in solidarity with mm -hmm. me? And it's clearly the responsibility of straight people to be in solidarity mm. with uh, LGBTQ plus people mm. and to begin by asking us, how can we help? Mm. And we'll say, by educating yourselves. Mm. And then when you've gone and educated yourselves, you might come back and say, how can we help now? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and now I'll say, it's good for you to educate yourself and I'm happy to help educate you. There's some mm. folk who feel like you really got to do that by yourselves. And some of us feel like just asking, mm. how can I help is a start. Mm. Um, and uh, but men need to be asking the same question of women mm. and white people and people from dominant cultures wherever they happen to be need to be asking that of people of color mm. and everybody who's not indigenous needs to be asking out of indigenous mm. people that being the original or the longest established uh, mm. people of a land who especially a land that's been colonized mm. um so these are questions i, I i'm on both sides of uh, mm. as are you mm. Um, I mean, one thing that's, we're both immigrants, mm. you know, you emigrated, emigrated here, I've mm. emigrated to the US. We have, we're privileged immigrant status because we're both white, we're both cisgender mm. men. Uh, and the, but there's still a kind and of- And we could leave if we want. We could leave if we want. And there's also, a, exactly, there's also a cultural commute that we do. Mm. You know, you've been here a lot longer than I've been in the US, but it's still real. Mm. And it grants us some insight. It also mm. makes some things easier for us. Mm. And maybe some things a bit harder. Mm. Um, so the pillars, the kind of moments in my journey, uh, I think Mike Riddell, mm -hmm. the second there. most influential <laughs> Kiwi in my life. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Mike Riddell, theology professor, former Baptist pastor, and, and now, thank God, for 22 years, one of my closest friends. Mm at the Greenbelt Festival in England in 90, or 1998, so 21 years since we met. I walked into Greenbelt, Steve Stockman, mm -hmm. uh, Presbyterian minister here, he knew Greenbelt like the back of his hand and I asked his advice, what, you know, what should I do when I'm here? And he says, go and hear someone you've never heard of. Because I was gonna go hear all the people I already knew. Mm. And, and he said, go see that Mike Riddell fella. Mm. So I went to see Mike Riddell. And Mike Riddell was talking about a moment in the New Testament when uh, the Spirit of God reveals to the Apostle Peter that everyone's welcome in the Christian community. And somebody asked Mike in a Q&A at the end of that session, you know, does this basically, did, uh, would this apply to gay people, for instance? <laughs> and Mike said, Yes. And it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody unequivocally say mm -hmm. yes. Not, well, it's a complicated issue or, well, I hate to send love the center or welcome, but not affirm. Mm -hmm. Just yes. And then Mike later said to me, all love between human beings is a manifestation of God mm -hmm. because God is love. 
That was the positive pillar, and there's been 20 years of theological reflection since then. But painful stuff was people telling me they thought I was demon-possessed, mm. or people telling me that this was because of trauma in my life. Because they were, it was like they were trying everything they could to find ways to explain away the fact that I think men are beautiful, mm. and I think women are beautiful, mm. and I love them all. And, and you know, and I, I, the way gender manifests is clearly not binary. It's clearly not. It's just observable reality that people manifest their gender in all kinds of different ways. And whether you say there's two genders in many ways of expressing those genders or there's a thousand genders, I don't care. What I care about is, are we going to love each other? Mm. And I feel lucky. No, I feel lucky because men are beautiful. And if I was straight, I don't know that I would know that. I don't think I would know it the way that I know it now. It doesn't mean I want to have sex with every man that I meet. It doesn't mean that I um, that it has to be processed through that kind of lens. It actually means I think I can love men in a way that many straight men aren't used to being loved. Mm. And one of the things that Brian and I have experienced, and I should say, by the way, because it's been mistaken in the past, the Brian to whom I am married is not the Brian with whom I write books. <laughs> the, the Brian with whom I, am, I write books is very happily married to Grace. Uh, Brian McLaren, my husband, is Brian Ammons, uh, also a doctor and a reverend um, and... Uh, an extraordinary human being. One of the things we've discovered in our relationship is the number of straight men who come and live in our house whenever they need a place to stay because they feel safe with us, mm. because they feel like we're able to talk with them about things that straight guys often feel unable to, to touch. Um, another piece, and again, you know, you said earlier, I probably wouldn't have chosen this. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have chosen it. Mm. Actually, no, I absolutely would choose it. Mm. Absolutely would choose it because men are amazing. Mm. And women are amazing, mm. and I love men, and I love being married to a man, and I would, I wouldn't, I, I would choose to be married to Brian even if I wasn't sexually attracted to him. And this is a whole lever of complexity here that people just need to learn to deal with. I could spend a lot of time talking about the bruising. Mm. I could spend a lot of time talking about the the pain. Mm. I don't need to. Mm. Um, and. I, if I was doing it, I wouldn't be talking about the beauty. I also wouldn't be advocating for the people today that need to be advocated for. And I don't think I would be honoring the pain of the people in the past who suffered more than I did, mm. generally. Mm. But we should not underestimate how much work there still is to be done to build a fully rainbow community. Mm. And when I talk about a rainbow community, it's Desmond Tutu who's advocating a rainbow community. Mm. You know, as far as I know, Desmond Tutu is a straight mm. cisgender man. <laughs> and and he has said things like he believes that God's heart regarding homopho challenging homophobia uh, is is like that it's more important than apartheid. Mm. Desmond Tutu says this. Mm. So don't take my word for it. Desmond Tutu and God, the the two of them, <laughs> the two of them you should you should listen to. Um and honor the suffering of the past. And if you're a person who isn't, who's, who's questioning this issue theologically, um, read some books by thoughtful people like David Gushy, mm. um, a book called Changing Our Minds, or Walter Wink's book, Homosexuality and Christian Faith, or get to know some LGBT people who are willing to get to know you, mm. who are mo who've, who've done some emotional healing work. Mm and who, who your presence in their life isn't going to harm them uh, more. We're not, and like the thing is, we're not all porcelain dolls. We're pretty resilient. Like I'm cool being in conversation uh, with anybody. 
because um, we only get anywhere by conversation and, mm. and listening. Yeah. Uh, and if you're if you're LGBT yourself and you haven't come out yet, um, find a safe LGBT person mm. to talk to. And mm. I, I try to be one of them. You can mm. find me at garethhiggins.net. I'd be glad to hear from you. Mm. And yeah. I remember the Petra concert well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always thought you were very lovely. yeah but you you, that's your opportunity to say something nice about me yeah you're great too (laughs) 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 well let's let's, we'll kind of uh, we're probably running out of time so let's uh, begin to wrap it up um maybe just when i think of uh of gareth um when i think of you gareth i think of a lot of a lot of um Fun memories. I think you might have been the first person I drank whiskey with. I think oh, you wow. gave me, you had a bottle of Black Bush and you were like, I was got it Black this. Bush? It was probably the Bushmills 10 year single malt. I don't know. It probably wasn't that good, whatever it was. <laughs> you know, but it, back then we thought it was good. Yeah. Uh, Gareth made. I, I don't know. Black Bush is all right. Yeah, it's all right. By Irish whiskey standards, it's all right. And I, I enjoyed um, great, those were great days in 1997. You and I and Pete Rollins lived together. And um, we, forgotten. we were going <laughs> to, Gareth has pushed that don't, back. I don't mind. have any memory of that That's at all. Talking about bruising, <laughs> bruising, that might have been. Um, and uh, I remember your dad giving me a copy of Bob Dylan's The Basement Tapes. What? One Christmas. I came and stayed at your house for Christmas one year. My dad has cool and, taste in music. Yeah, yeah. And he, But I guess your parents got me a whole lot of Christmas. Christmas presents because I have this, because yeah, um, because I guess it wouldn't have been fair for Carol and yeah. you and Brian to get presents and I didn't, so yeah. I got presents too, which I thought was really nice. So I got the basement tapes, and um, but also one of the abiding memories I have of you really was the fact that you were the reader, um, you were the person I knew who read most and mm. who tended to kind of introduce to the rest of us mm. books. You were the first person who gave me Walter Wink, um, The Powers of Be. Um, first person that gave talked about Dallas Willard, the divine mm-hmm. conspiracy, um, and Henry Nowen probably mm. was the first. You were the first person I ever talked mm. to about that. Um, I wonder what what currently are some of the books that you're kind of or a book that you're really kind of being impacted by. And um, I'll give you three, um, four actually. <laughs> so I mean, the powers that be continues mm. to influence me. I read it again last year. Mm. Um, the Color Purple, Alice Walker's novel, which I'd never read until mm. recently. I think it's the great American novel. And part of why is because she created a whole new language. And it's a story about immense suffering in the life of a person who transforms it into something uh, whole. Mm. It's an extraordinary book. And then there's a, a very recent book by a guy called James Hollis called Living an Examined Life. Mm. Uh, Hollis was the head of the the Carl Jung Institute in Zurich, and you can't get more Jung than Zurich. Uh, and it's 21 chapters. Each of them are like three or four pages long. And he says, only read one chapter a day, but definitely read one chapter a day for three weeks. And it could change your life. And it did change my life. It, it helped me be more courageous mm. in life. Uh, and then the other is this exquisite book by Terry Tempest Williams called The Hour of Land, which is about the history of how the national park system in the U.S. came into being. I think the national parks might be the best American thing that's ever happened, mm. other than maybe Habitat for Humanity or the Catholic Worker Movement. Mm. Martin and, Scorsese. And, and, well, I think mean, Scorsese's a pretty, pretty, pretty good <laughs> American. No longer my favorite uh, yeah. filmmaker, oh, by the way. Right? Richard Linklater is my favorite oh, okay. uh, contemporary filmmaker. Um, 
but the Ireland's it's about like what was done to make the national parks, which has good things in it and shadowy things in mm. it as well, but people being moved off the mm. land, mm. but now the land is protected and mm. it's just a gorgeous uh, kind of a memoir, kind of books of a, a book of essays mm. uh, that helps me feel more of the joy of living in the US now because there's some problems in the US. There's, mm. a, there's a lot of problems in the yeah, US. Yeah. There's a so lot I've of heard. pain so right now. Yeah. And, um, uh, and there's a lot of good and I am trying to be a good steward of my own privilege mm. and my own questions too yeah I, I, th I think I want, want to ask one more question while we're talking about kind of books um, one kind of contemporary priest pastor writer that you got to know in the latter years of his life was, was John O'Donoghue um, yeah. is there a little kind of anecdote or a reflection you have of something he wrote or said uh, you know, when I think about John, what is often in the front of my mind is something he said. I don't remember. I don't know if he ever wrote this down, but he, I heard him say it once about um, the necessity of being your own best friend, mm. which is a countercultural idea, although it's, it's one third of the greatest commandment mm. to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And I feel like John was really trying to be his own best friend. Mm. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with him and, you know, he would, I, I remember on a number of occasions, he'd walk into the room in the morning, you know, maybe we were on a helping with a retreat or something or he mm. came and stayed at our house mm. and uh, he'd walk into the room and he'd go, I love my life, <laughs> you know, and it would be how he would start the day mm. rather than the, oh, I didn't sleep too well or, mm. or whatever. Mm. And, uh, and he had... You know, I got the sense that when he looked in the mirror, mm. he liked what he saw mm. and that he had trained himself to like what he saw. Mm. But, um, and that but not in a vain way. Not, no, not in a vain way at all. Mm. And it didn't mean he thought he was perfect. But mm. like, and I, I have this practice that I sometimes do. I, I literally look in the mirror and after I recover from just the sheer unadulterated beauty of it, which usually <laughs> takes me... I mean, I know. I notice you've been you've been shaking a little bit during this interview with just nerves at being in my presence, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, uh, I I will look in the mirror and I will I will look at this person as if it wasn't me, mm. and I will I will say, how would I treat this person if he was my own best friend? Mm. And sometimes we can develop friendships with other people who can really reflect that back to us. Like your best friends are the ones who love you the most. Mm. Right, and that includes critiquing you sometimes. Mm. But all of us hopefully go on a journey where we come to realize: see those people who I thought were my friends, they're not my friends. Mm. The mm. ones who are always slagging me, the ones who never mm. say anything kind. Mm. That's just a kind of a cohort. Mm. But your own best friend would be the one that would say, "You're beautiful. Mm. You're brilliant. You're amazing. Mm. What are you going to do? What are you going to do today? You, you overstepped there, or hey, you need to do a bit more of that. Mm. But uh, you're just gorgeous." Mm who can see the image of love in you. So that that's the thing. And I say that about John because it's not a lot of, you know, maybe because he didn't, I don't know if he wrote it down or not. Mm. It's not really what people talk about when they talk mm. about him. Mm. And he helped me become a better friend to myself mm. um, just because of what he reflected to mm. me. Well, Gareth Higgins, thank you very much for your time and uh, many years of friendship. And um, I hope as people listen to this, um, there's lots of little nuggets, I think, in what you've said. You know, the, 
the kind of theme, I suppose, of these podcasts. I mean, in, in many ways, it's just an excuse for me to talk to people I like. Um, but on a deeper level, I suppose the theme is, can, can we be guardians of the flame? Um, uh, if, if particularly religion is something that can be toxic and dangerous and hurtful, and it can burn people, um, can we be those who guard the flame to, so that the flame actually warms and brings life and, and light uh, instead of just heat, you know? And, um, and I suppose in America and the West, there's a lot of heat going on mm -hmm. and not so much light around, about, around many of these conversations of faith, sexuality. Um, and, and I think you're one of the people who is really in no more evidence in the, than in your latest book with Brian McLaren that you're, you're someone who is, is guarding the flame and you're showing us how to do it. And, um, and I appreciate all that. Appreciate the whiskey you gave me all those years ago. <laughs> Appreciate you buying me uh, the ticket to see um, Death Becomes Her. Death Becomes Her, <laughs> and uh, what was that movie? Uh, Harrison Ford. Patriot Games. Patriot Games. Yeah, yeah. We saw some pretty ropey movies. We saw some good. We saw Sorry, Magnolia. Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis has made some good movies too. The best movie I think I saw with you is Magnolia. But we could. That's we could, a wild film. We could talk a lot about Magnolia, but let's yeah. not do it now. So thanks, Gareth. My pleasure. Time. Thanks for um, having me. Yeah, anytime. And uh, yeah, thank you, everyone. See you later. <laughs>